0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Eccentric CEO podcast. I'm your host, Aman. And today I have with me a very special guest, Anna Maria Hanel. Mm -hmm. And Anna Maria is the CEO of a really interesting company called Dizior, which develops 3D medical analytics, uh, 3D image analytics software for doctors, for the medical industry. And so in this episode, we will learn about the medical imaging industry, and what it's like to build and bring new medical tech into the marketplace. Thank you so much for joining us today, Anna Maria.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: By the way, when I say medical imaging industry, usually I think about CAT scans and x-rays and, uh, you know, and whatnot. So is that is that an accurate description of which industry you are in or is there a better way to call what you do?
1: So the definition is pretty broad, but yeah. that is kind of because the image analysis that we do is somehow between the imaging devices, meaning the devices producing the x-rays, CT scans and all that, and and then the actual operating room, what happens in the operating theater. So it's kind of uh, between that, what is the situation, telling me kind of what it is, what I need to do, and then I plan it, and then I do it. So kind of between the diagnostical imaging and the operating theater.
0: Cool. So let's start with the use case right who are your customers and what's their situation let's say you weren't let's say you didn't exist right who are your customers and what do they get from you what's their problem
1: yeah so today um very much of the diagnostics is done on the patient medical imaging. Of course, there are other factors, age, uh, body weight and, and what whatever. But anyway, the big portion of the diagnostics is depending on the image. Uh, so mm-hmm. you need to take the image and then you ne- need to make some interpretation of the image itself. And today, the images are analyzed very much manually. So there is a person, it's a radiologist, it's a surgeon who is taking the image, looking at it, making interpretations, manual measurements, trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what is there and what is not. And then based on that information, he then decides what the diagnosis is, he decides what to do, operation, other treatment, maybe nothing. And the problem there today is that, well, uh, every time there is a human involved, it's kind of it can be biased it can be different depending on the person who is looking some people are more experienced so junior senior There, mm-hmm. there is also studies that it depends the results depends on the size of the clinic because in big clinics you can always ask for assistance hey come yeah. and look this with me so what does it what does it say to you but if you're alone or a very small clinic. So they, there is a big variation of what the output is. So the, so the human bias factor is actually was the biggest concern of the surgeons today, because then if, if the information they interpret is different, the diagnosis can be different, the treatment plan can be different, depending on where you go and who you see. And of course, we all and they all want to offer equal treatment for everyone, the best possible that you can get. So mm-hmm. in that sense, we, we we created the software that is kind of objectively analyzing the images without the human bias and the human factor. Also other factors there is that today, the manual interpretation takes quite much time, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, and it's usually then also done by a couple of people. So the radiologist, yeah. Is every time doing it. The clinician can also do it just to be sure because he, mm. she needs, he's anyway responsible for the treatment. So it's double that time. So our software does it like in a couple of minutes, mm. only one time needed. And also, then the accuracy of the diagnostics affects the, the treatment and diagnostics, precise net effectiveness of the treatment. So then basically, everything is smoother after that. So that's kind of the 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 spot we're on
0: mm-hmm. I see so the so the main challenges are that when a doctor looks at a scan it their judgment depends on number one their skill level and experience and uh, uh, it's also like different doctors see different things, right yes, and clinical that, habits yeah. vary mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and on top of that. If they want assistance it doubles the time you that you take to uh, actually deliver the, the diagnostic right
1: yes and then there is one more thing because today when you look at the images um, manually so they come out from the div- imaging device in a sense kind of as a 2d format so you mm-hmm. have 2d slices or you have an x-ray and our diagnostics tool is kind of able to do the analysis of that imaging data as it was a 3D, actual 3D, which the human cannot do at this point because of Mm. the way it's transported out of the imaging device. So it transforms also the today's 2D data or 2D world into a real 3D world, which is, of course, then much more representative of the actual anatomy because human is a 3D in -hmm. essence.
0: So you mean like, uh, let's take a few examples. So uh, give me a case study. Like, is it an X-ray that it turns into 3D X-ray or like, I mean, I I don't know if that's possible because an X-ray is just like one image scan, like one, uh, like very 2D, right? Yeah. By default, right? So what kind of scans are are these can you give me some examples
1: um yes so uh basically um the the scans that are today being analyzed they are 3d scans so it's not an x-ray we work on the x-ray transform x-ray into 3d as well but that is Mm. as a side of today Yeah. but the imaging imaging data in nature are such that it creates these kind of slices out yeah. of the anatomy. So it's a 2D slice and a 2D slice and a 2D slice on a yeah. bit different location. And it does it in every direction. Yeah. But when a human views that data, so he can mm. only go kind of slice per slice, per slice, per slice. So he doesn't see at the same time the full 3D. So so it's actually all, a lot depends about on the... Uh, how the surgeon how the person can kind of imagine the situation in 3d Mm. when he does look at the 2d slice so it's kind of the interpretation as and as one surgeon told me some people have better kind of uh, way to imagine the 3d based on the data they see and some people don't have that good so it's kind of a personal ability again but anyway that's kind of the that's kind of the nature of the today's medical images that they come in a sense in a 2d visualization in front of your eyes and that's Mm -hmm. how you view them
0: Mm. yeah i've seen for example in uh, especially in radiology some people have these 3d scans that they rotate around with the mouse like if they have a cancer a pet ct for example. Mm. Um, but mm. for the brain scan, we've all seen like in the movies and everything like there's this huge, uh, this huge array of multiple brain scans at different levels of, you know, of slicing, yes. like you said, and you're just looking at yes. the doctors are just looking at this huge array of scans of the same brain. Yeah. Uh, and trying to yes. make sense of uh, what's going on.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And then they kind of transform all those data slices on kind of in the arrays and they, they transform it in their brain into a 3D. And what the software here does is that it constructs the thing all in 3D and it does all those parametric analyses in the 3D. Mm -hmm.
0: So the input of the software, the input to the software is the scan, the 3D scan that comes from the machine, right? Yes. What is the output? What is the output of the software? Uh, The output
1: of the software is actually a report with the numbers, the values, the parameters, the numbers. We call them the radiographical parameters that then are the ones that they need to report. And then it's all visuals related to those measures. And then in addition, it also produces the 3D models. So the 3D representations of all those tissue structures in the image. And then it also has the ability that you can create this kind of patient-specific surgical plan based on those 3D models. And then it also provides you that if the preoperative situation had values or parameters like this, and if you do the modification like this, that you put the cut line here, you do an open wedge, closed wedge, osteotomy, you move, you make a spacer, so what those values look after that operational procedure so it estimates and simulates you what happens after that so that is I kind see. of what it gives out
0: i see so it gives you a second opinion in a way that you wouldn't that you would uh, wouldn't have if you were only looking at 2d 2d slices
1: yeah so it kind of more or less it, you don't need to measure it by yourself You can, of course, visualize everything, kind of look how it looks. But all those measurements, all the data points are exactly defined by the software. Mm. And the kind of the thing there is that, well, of course, one thing is is how it goes to the diagnostic phase itself. So that it's an objective way to measure things. Mm -hmm. The other thing, which I think is really important, what they address, the, the surgeons as well, that you can have... Now, so the preoperative situation with the numbers and you can have the after treatment situation with the numbers if you do another scan and you can actually with those objectively measured parameters see the effectiveness of the treatment. How much, how good did we actually do? How much better did we get? Did we get close to the normal values or not? Mm -hmm. And that is then something that, that then, tells every, well, of course, for that patient, how well did it go? and also all in all, to create better treatments, we start to collect the data what treatments are efficient, which should we do? And this hadn't been so much kind of a, or it kind of been a process that is very uh, slow because the data that you get from the treatments is, of course, today has been subjective. So manual measurements, manual visualization, kind of human observation. Mm -hmm. So then it's hard to know what works and what not, because you cannot actually compare any data based on the same baseline. And now we have the way to kind of measure things objectively and you can have the idea of the efficiency.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: real numbers from different clinics you can measure same thing across Europe same thing across every hospital in the country with a certain mm-hmm. kind of pathology how did we do so it kind of allows this um, kind of development of the treatments, seeing which ones works and which don't in which situation and so on so it's kind of a database for that.
0: It's also a database so it's going to store for example for a given type of image um the history and uh, get more data from other treatments happening across you know a hospital that you don't yeah know.
1: it can be yes so absolutely so it can be as a baseline for the data collection so uh if a hospital wants to kind of start to follow that how yeah. are our treatments doing? And then they combine one data set is the numbers, one data set is the condition in the with the patients, different types, and then you start to have the understanding that, hey, how should we treat people like this? And uh, as such, we don't collect that kind of database. Of course, we are not even allowed to collect any of that. But that is what I know some clinics are starting to do and they do research based on this exact type of analysis mm-hmm. when they try to develop better criterias for surgeries or better treatment paths in general mm-hmm. for certain types of patients
0: mm-hmm. so we touched on a few themes here number one that this data of course you cannot collect directly you can't keep it on the cloud right uh, so you have to do so we will touch on that theme a little later one more thing that I want to talk about is who are the buyers? So for, for a technology like this, right, where you're assisting the doctor to make better decisions, who's the, who's the buyer? Is it the doctor or is it the, a hospital? And how is the process different for selling to doctors versus selling to an organization, uh, like a hospital?
1: Uh, yeah, so uh, usually the buyer is the radiology department, Okay. of a hospital because mm-hmm. usually they are handling the purchasing everything related to the imaging as mm-hmm. such um the thing with us is that we are a bit between departments so we mm-hmm. are uh, the the user is both in radiology and in the surgical department mm-hmm. but usually then they somehow divide that who does the purchase and where then the money comes from but that um overall um the process can be quite fast or then it can be uh, slower. It depends on where everything,
0: Um,
1: but usually we need to have, in a sense, good kind of, um, point from both sides, surgeon side and radiology side, so that they need to decide together that hey, this is a good thing. So we need to have Mm -hmm. the kind of the user's consent because in these type of tools, the organization cannot kind of do the purchase and say Mm -hmm. to the to the surgeon, hey, this is what you need to do. This is Mm -hmm. what you need to use, because they are very autonomous in their work and they need to they know what they need to yeah. give the better treatment. So they are more or less saying that, hey, this is what we need to give out the best performance. Mm-hmm. And then the departments are there kind of uh, coming along to that decision and then they are finding the budget and, and all that. So that's kind of how the process goes.
0: Mm, I see. And uh, from your perspective as an entrepreneur who is build, bringing this technology into the marketplace, what is it like... So, um, so. My question will be in two parts right number one what is it like to sell to these doctors and these different departments right where do you usually get pushback from which people are actually more you know interested in yeah i need more help or this would be really great for us versus oh i'm doing pretty good on my own uh, we don't really need any assistance or any kind of software for this like so num- the first part is what is that and the next part is what is the rate of adoption as a whole in the medical industry for new digital tech like this one right so let's start with the first part first
1: yes so um all in all treating humans treating patients is very conservative area Yeah. Uh, and i in a sense totally understand that because the medical science has been developing for hundreds and hundreds of years, yeah. in a way that the more senior has been teaching the junior ones that this is how you do, and it's a lot of manual kind of a handcraft type of yeah. work that you feel how it feels, you open people up and see what it looks like, and then you learn how to do that. So in that sense, um, they are very kind of people are very confident in, in kind of that kind of process yeah. and all those old teaching uh, things are really staying. And I understand why that is because there is a huge responsibility when you're a surgeon or a, or a, or a clinician and you are responsible for someone's life. So you need to be really sure on what you do. Yeah. So it has been seen to us in a way that we have done a lot of scientific validation of the product okay. because otherwise it, it 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 is a nice to have and it is something that I might try here and there just to have a techie feeling or a showcase or something. but it's not going to be part of the clinical work if you don't have the scientific evidence that the results are consistent they are related or similar or kind of reliable to the context of what has been before. Because people are used to see something and look for something and base their decision on something. So the new things need to be in tight relationship with that one what exists already. And that's why we created, I think we have today like around 15 published papers Mm. not ours, but the different clinics all over the world to prove that what the results show, that they are good and repeatable and and consistent. So that's number one, that needs to be there. Of Mm. course, there is always the early adopters or the, so to say, in some sense, the key opinion leaders who are driving the thing, who wants, there is this very i I admire i really admire their passion you know to create everything all the time we need to do better we need to do kind of whatever it takes to create the best treatment ever we can for our patients and those guys are the ones that we love to work with because i don't want them to see that i hey i'm here i'm i'm selling you a thing i think it's great but well whatever i'm just selling it i we always like to have this kind of co-creation. I want that our thing is so good that we can actually create something great with that together with the clinicians. Whether it sells or it doesn't sell, I want to leave a mark in the yeah. world that, hey, this is possible and here we can go. So we we have uh, that kind of work ongoing, and but it's quite slow. Yep. So when the key opinion leaders are doing the studies and verifying that everything is good, and we are getting some new, new things out, so then people start to get interested, yep. and then yep. they are like, "Wow, it seems like that maybe I do it as well." And then it's not then any many qu- more question. I'm fine without, or no, I don't. I'm, I'm I don't need it. It's kind of that they they start to go to that direction. Mm -hmm. Because then all the results seem to be coming in a certain format, for example, and everybody wants to go and follow the same. But it's really kind of a slow thing. But based on the facts that I kind of stated on that, where we all come from to this point, it's really understandable. Mm -hmm. And maybe then on the second one related to the industry as a whole. So the industry also, is quite conservative, uh, mm-hmm. in a sense that that the established markets are there and they are kind of going uh, uh, on their own. They are developing something.
0: So, uh, yeah, you know, one quick clarification. So, let let me take an example. So, yes. if you had to compare today's medical technologies, when the things which you would ordinarily see in a hospital, right? Mm compared to, let's say, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And I know there's a huge, you know, long horizon for just a, te- a new technology to come mm. into the marketplace because it has to go through all these approvals and whatnot. But in mm. general, how many, like, how, how new or how, uh, you know, how, how, like, how old are the technologies that we're using these days right now? In the radiology imaging department and the you know and the ten, things that we do.
1: Tens of tens, tens of years.
0: Tens as in like tens how many tens? <laughs> like like ten? 20, um,
1: Twenty to seventy.
0: Twenty to seventy. Years. Years. What is the yes. what is the latest technology that has been the most prevalent? Can you give me an example?
1: Um Actually, all the imaging technologies, they are pretty old. So there is incremental changes, incremental improvements, but the basic X-ray technology, the basic CT technology, so they are kind of pretty old. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so I don't think there is too much kind of real radical innovation or then I'm just not aware of it because I'm not the best expert in the imaging technology. Tech as such, but it's kind of um, within the la- last hundred years, there has been a big evolution because there has been overall the industrial evolution and all the machines are coming and, and so on. So that's actually one thing. But-, but all in all, usually the technology is quite old. So it needs 10 years to mature and then it needs five, 10 years to go to market. So one uh, colleague told me that the software like this, after it's ready, so we say like we develop it for four years, Mm -hmm. go to market for this type of software is like three to five years for the adoption phase. So that gives you that kind of 10 years, that Mm -hmm. 10 years ago it was done and then it more or less is a standard like today. So it comes pretty slowly, but there is, of course, eagerness in the medical device industry, of course, to go for, for the digital revolution and all that. And there is um, places that it's more easy for this electrical patient records and uh, transforming information, managing patient flow, that is kind of easier for the digitalization. But then the actual surgical procedures or patient diagnostics, it's a bit harder to, to go into that layer where what is wrong? How do we kind of define what that automated robot would say that hey patient comes in and the robot checks you and then it says well you have this and that and all this and go for the next phase so that is it's not there yet so we, they are going for the digitalization a bit kind of around uh that uh, that core things what the doctors do mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. so uh, on the whole it's be it's pretty slow and is that even for software like is the cycle same similarly long
1: it's quite long depending on what what it what the software needs to do so if it's in the core diagnostics if it's in the core surgery planning that it actually tells you numbers and figures and facts what the usually the surgeon needs to check for himself then it's quite quite long so it depends mm-hmm. of the complexity and it depends on the output of the software so how close are you going to the core functions of the what the doctor usually would do mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: but it's more or less the same as you were talking about the regulations yeah because the regulations are also kind of divided into certain kind of uh levels and they are more or less a bit the same so the further away you are from the body itself implantable devices or or creating devices that actually has a saying in the diagnosis or actually you make a decision on a surgery based on a machine the close the higher the risks are if the decision is wrong so the further the longer time it takes for the development the harder is the regulation And also, then it can be, uh, due to that, a longer time for the adoption. But the lighter the device is or the software is, so it's not too risky for humans if something goes wrong. It's maybe a bit easier to develop, a bit lighter to regulate, and then maybe a bit uh, faster. But this can be, of course, it's case dependent and can be kind of um, um, varying a lot, but as an overall, I see it like that.
0: Interesting. That that's very interesting because, you know, the further you go from the actual operation, the more variance you could create in the direction that you the treatment goes into, right? Uh, if you have if mm. you mess up if you mess up at the diagnostic stage, then and you go down the direction of surgery, which where maybe it was necessary right? That's a much Mm. bigger risk in a way, like on the whole, that's a bigger risk than if you already are at the treatment level of the drug, and then you, you know, maybe have a different efficacy or I mean, of course, there's side effects as well. So you want to make sure that Mm. what you're doing doesn't do any harm. Uh, But it's interesting that the timelines completely change or change by a huge factor. Uh, The further Mm. you get away from the uh, treatment itself although that makes sense i mean doctors itself like the engagement of the doctor uh herself in the decision making process is also kind of kind of like is expected to make up for the technology that you're using is that right or like uh, i mean i'm this is just really fascinating to me yeah
1: so um all in all the the regulative um Directions under development, so kind of the level of development needs, you can maybe translate into the intelligence of the device that you're trying to do. So the more risk or the more harm you can create, the higher the regulative standards go, because that's kind of, of course, evident the higher the risk that you cause something bad, wrong diagnostic, wrong treatment decision, bad surgery. You say to the patient, you don't need to come, even though he's badly ill or something. So then the risk is high. The regulations are high. All in all, in these devices, usually the final say is anyway with the surgeon. So there Mm -hmm. is at least in our software, in I think almost kind of, everywhere in the medical device industry so there needs to be this kind of disclaimer saying uh, that that the surgeon and the doctor who has the training so, so uh, the user needs to have a certain training to be able to use the thing the device yep. and then the device because you need to understand what the device tells you
0: Yep. yep
1: and then in a sense the final say is then still with the. Uh, the trained physician or the person and uh, but but all in all so though so the risk levels should be in all the devices managed in that way that the the, the risk level is on control and you cannot too much make mistakes or then you really understand that hey this cannot be correct and i need to do this decision without the device at all so so it's a careful uh, kind of managing the risk level, and that's what the regulations are there for, yeah. and uh, and all that. So, but I see it as I said, kind of on on this that the, the the closer you get to the core decisions and the risky parts, the the harder it it is from all perspectives.
0: Mm, I see. So the final say is with the surgeon, and uh, of course the regulations are not stupid or one-dimensional. They, of course, look at the risks uh, you know, involved with whether it's a bad diagnostic or just a small efficacy issue uh, with the, the device that you're actually selling. So it, is, it takes into account the impact of a, a mistake on the final treatment. And it's not just one-dimensional like, oh, the farther you are from the body, the less you need to be uh,
1: tested right no 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 it's not no it's not kind of related how far you are within the body so it's more or less the the how big of a risk yeah can you how how much harm can you create even though you are not close to the treatment you're further away Mm so in that sense that's kind of the the risk level and regulative level and of course it doesn't need to be but usually it is so that the that the implantable devices that go into the body and stay there they are the highest class also the diagnostic tools are very high class usually and also all these robots are very high class but mm-hmm. then if you have a patient flow monitor or something that is there a queue somewhere so that's a bit lighter Mm. kind of uh, because there is maybe the harm you can create is that the queue gets longer or or something like that kind of really roughly speaking
0: Mm. and can you give some context as to how much the timelines change for regulatory approval of course it's always varying for even the same class of devices but in general, yeah. from class to class, how much how much have you seen the timelines vary? What's the, like, the longest versus the shortest? It depends
1: so much yeah. on how the device is done and developed and which phases it does need to go through. So usually mm-hmm. if you're in a higher class, you need to do the clinical trials, mm-hmm. which can take years. Mm-hmm. And if you don't need to do that, it can be one year, two year, uh, process and if you need to do the trials, it can be three, four, five uh, years of approval process.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And also, I don't know how it is with the drug development, but there I understood it's really long with all those clinical trial phases and all that. But for our case, in uh, as an example, so it took us like uh, the whole process like uh, three years. Mm -hmm. building everything from building everything from scratch meaning that uh, in order to have the approval the company needs to be certified for a certain procedure um, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, uh, and standards and then in addition the software or the product needs to be certified and they are kind of two different things
0: interesting the company needs to be certified separately from the product that you're building?
1: Uh, yes, so we need to be certified according to certain regulations um, as a company so that we do things in an organized manner. So oh, I we, we fulfill an ICO, I don't remember the standard number, but we fulfill a certain ICO standard on how the company is uh, doing things, uh, managing things. Uh, Uh, making uh, risk uh, analysis, uh, storing of everything. So everything needs to be organized and secured and safe and well managed. Mm -hmm. And then as a separate one, then when you start to create the product, so then the product needs to be certified from the beginning Mm. to
0: the end. So when you say from the beginning to the end, it means from the beginning of the development process to the end of the development development process.
1: And Yes, and with the clinical trials and all that, so you need to certify the product so that you need to say and show where it began, why did we do a product like this, where the requirements came from, how did we start the development, how did we test it, how did we manage the risks, Uh, So all that needs to be documented throughout the whole life cycle of the development and then also uh, when the product is out there in the market. Mm -hmm. So it still continues
0: um, all the time. I see. I see what you mean. Hmm. Wow. Can you give me some example of like certain things that people wouldn't imagine, like that people wouldn't know that you have to do certain things in a certain way, which would be totally okay with... Uh, like something that would be totally okay in a regular software company, but would be completely disastrous in your case or something or the opposite,
1: yeah, so um uh one one surprise for us, for example, was that um as the both the company and the people needs to be certified as well as the product, mm-hmm. so outsourcing of anything is really hard. Because then the the uh, the usage of other resources uh, is really hard. Because then you need to see the compliance of the whole thing, and it's really that was really hard. Also, mm-hmm. I don't know if other industries also that you need to be able to document the whole process. So from the idea uh, to the to in in every step of the development, how the architecture was changing and how the test results were changing, and documented everything that why did we modify this part and why did we modify that part and what the results are now. So every step of the way needs to be documented. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, tons, millions things of paper, and it and and also this that you need to know more or less. In the beginning, already that what we are going to do and what we are going, how we are going to document it, and you need to have the tests ready and defined and coded and everything because it's it's kind of really heavy process mm. to just start like that. And we start to code and we start to do it because then it's it's really hard for it to go backwards in time and try to kind of uh, document everything. And then all in all, it's hard to just in, innovate or invent something if you would kind of need to know in advance already what it will be and wow. how it will go. So it, it it's it's a challenge from the, um, at least from for us, has been kind of from the innovation perspective. Yeah. Because you pretty much are tied in a box already in the beginning and, and trying to change that along the way is a really hard and uh that's maybe uh somehow a bit kind of uh, funny
0: wow uh that must be frustrating <laughs> as an entrepreneur it is right?
1: it, it is and and also in the beginning and uh, the regulations as we came out from another field mm. so i hadn't seen like that anything like that ever so it, it, it was so complex to try to interpret what the regulations meant hmm. that I can say that it took us maybe 70 percent of the time just went to the thing that we tried to understand what we were supposed to do and then 30 percent of the time went to that that we actually did than what we thought that we should be doing so oh. so the and I understand that the legislation, of course, it's really, it's really broad and it's really complex because it needs to cover all kinds of devices. Yeah. As we yeah. talked, from those that patient flow uh, software to the robot in the surgery, mm-hmm. so it needs to cover them all. So they are pretty generic. Yeah. And yeah. it's pretty hard to navigate. <laughs> in that or uh, in all of those things to really understand that, okay, what we were doing again? Is it mm. class what? Yeah. And, and, and how, sh- how, how hard is it? And then it gives them the fact that the resourcing, I of course, need to think about the how much does this take time? How many resources do we need to have? So it's really hard to predict anything.
0: Hmm. How easy is it to find somebody like a lawyer or- con- I mean I, I don't know if you can find a consultant who can actually like but people people who provide this kind of advice and this kind of interpretation as a service, what is it like to find somebody or working with somebody like that?
1: Um, there are many consultant companies because they of course uh, I'm not alone with my problems, yeah. so there yeah. is several companies, several newcomers, especially. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I found and we found best is that um, we anyway needed to build up the company so that we have the knowledge inside. So then we learned and then we hired persons that know things. Mm -hmm. Um, So we thought that, okay, because we thought that we are going to be a fear for a long time. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a one-time thing. So we need to build up the company so that we have the regulative knowledge inside. Yeah. But before we had those people, of course, when you're in the beginning and you don't have too much money and you don't have too much of anything, yeah. so then you more or less need to just read it by yourself mm-hmm. and try to figure out where to go, use the consultants uh, just for those bits that you really don't know. Yeah. Yep. and then try to build it from there
0: mm, interesting this is actually one whole like I think area of uh, probably uh, expertise because I mean this puts into perspective uh, and now I can see like so the vaccine for COVID right it came out within one year pretty much give or take right uh, in most uh, geographies and uh, and I've seen like uh, I mean me as a very science forward person i've uh, i've always i've always felt like okay why are people against the vaccine why are people concerned about the safety so much when it's been tried and tested but now when i put it putting into perspective the speed at which the vaccine was developed and you know brought out into the market compared to you know what you're telling me the real picture of what happened in general and what i had learned previously i i have a friend who was building a new type of scan to com- cancer scan to compete with the mammograms and the PET CT, right? And he's a mm. he's a he's a scientist at Duke University in America, and he told me it takes twenty years to build a machine and bring it to market to get it approved through the FDA and everything. Mm-hmm. Right? Twenty years to get that machine approved. Mm. Um, and for drugs, I've seen like of course similar similar timelines like three, five years, you know, ten years. So, for a mm. vaccine like this to come out in one year, it—I can see that the concerns are not completely unfounded about the safety and the efficacy. But that's a prob—that's probably a very different discussion for another time. But I yeah. just thought that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, I know, I know. And then, of course, I'm no expert in there, but of course, uh, I think there—the thing that it was a bit faster was that there is similar ones already approved. So. Yeah. But um, but I am no expert in that area. But mm-hmm. yes, all in all, it is a heavy process. And I, in a sense, appreciate the heavy process because mm-hmm. I wouldn't be wanting to provide to any clinician anything that could create any harm. So yeah. I wouldn't kind of want that to be ever happening. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I respect uh, the regulatory uh Uh, processes really much
0: Mm -hmm. does that also affect the way you pitch or sell to the doctors and uh, navigate that sales process
1: um yes so more or less you cannot sell if you don't have the approvals of course um so in that sense it's obvious that yes it is tested and yes it is regulated so how we usually work with the new hospital potential users and so, so of course we always um, refer to the clinical evidence and to the scientific evidence that we have. Mm -hmm. We also show them the new possibilities that they would have by analysis like this. Mm -hmm. So... um, So those kind of, but it comes down pretty much to the safety of the thing, to the validation of of the software, that that is the starting point. And then we grow from there to discuss what it actually is and what it gives and what it doesn't give yet and what are the possibilities that you can do with it.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So the next thing is, given that given the way the system uh, works and the product works, right? I'm very curious, how do you even validate, objectively, a software like this? Or what are the metrics that you need to hit? And what are the benchmarks for those metrics? And how are the benchmarks decided for this kind of uh, validation? So
1: the scientific work, and mm-hmm. the validation, it usually um, is a comparative study yeah. uh, of a certain set of images with a certain set of pathologies. And then they compare the results of the software um, with, for example, human Manual measurements of a certain set of people, mm. or they compare the results with other softwares validated previously. Mm. And uh, one thing is uh, is kind of the, to see that how the parameters are looking, are they the same? Is there an offset? And also, uh, other thing is the repeatability. They do a lot of this so-called inter and intra-observer reliability. Testing, mm-hmm. meaning that inter observer is so that you have multiple users or multiple measurers or multiple people using the software and they do the similar type of data sets and then they see how comparable, how repeatable are the results. And then uh, intra observer is that the same person is doing that kind of repeating the same studies and then they are seeing okay how the new results are against the old ones what what we are used to see and what is validated before and all in all you can kind of argue what is a good benchmark Mm -hmm. I don't know if there exists even one Mm -hmm. but as I was telling in the beginning people tend to refer to people what they have seen before or kind of they refer to things that they have seen before. So if you are looked for x-rays or for CT scans for 15 years, and you always look them like this, and you always measure it like this, and you can confirm in the literature that yes, this value is something that I should use, and this is how you measure it. So then you take the same measurement with the software, and you see whether we are on the same level. And if there is differences, where do do they come from? So they tend to kind of refer to literature, uh, their own work, other similar softwares, and if there is a golden truth, I don't know if there is, mm-hmm. but it's kind of a combination of, of what exists today. Yeah,
0: yeah, I see. I see. So in a sense, uh, you know, if I understand correctly, you have a, if you have a scan, right? and uh, your software does some measurements of course like the parameters measure the parameters digitally and versus if a doctor was to estimate what those numbers would be uh, mm. which i don't know how they how a doctor would do that i mean except for visual stuff that they can actually measure with a scale versus something that you know some other software is doing for non visually measurable stuff um mm and they look at okay how accurate the doctor is t- tends to be with these measurements mm-hmm. or how different doctors how much in agreement different doctors are mm-hmm. in measuring certain things versus where the software's performance fits in like where does the measurement of the software fit in with what doctors typically come up with what is the data you know uh, data variants look is that is that an accurate summary of uh, of how that validation is done
1: Yes. Yes. And what is the strength of the software is comes back to the thing that we were talking in the beginning. So the objective way to measure things. So it always does it the same way. Mm. So no matter where the golden truth is, so it has been proven that the variation between people doing it is huge. Yeah. Yeah. And the repeatability of the software is really good, mm. and then you can t- t- uh, see the mean values or the whatever kind of where the trend is the same, so the the the, the values are similar. Yeah. But the variation is the one where the software beats the human, mm. and uh, that's kind of the thing that. I don't say that the software's value is the golden truth. I just say it always yeah. does it the same way. Mm-hmm. So the result, again, you can come back to this bigger picture. So then the data is comparable and the data is collectible and the data is linkable to everywhere to actually then if everybody would use the same way, we could have more better surgical criteria, diagnostical criteria, because the human variation factor is Mm. taken away and all that factor that people measure the same thing differently. So the result can be very different and the treatment can be very different. And all this comes down to the thing that we need to somehow standardize on how we interpret the image and then based on that one then we can start to make it better we can start to add parameters we can modify the weights measured but we start to s- start we need to start somewhere mm. to unify actually the basics because now there is no unified basis there is people here doing like this and people here doing like that and 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 they are not you cannot kind of put those data points together because it doesn't then it it's not it's not compatible
0: mm, I see I see uh, and you know that kind of reminds me uh, one thing that I wanted to discuss there's a lot of companies uh, tech startups that I come across who are using deep learning and you know machine learning for doing these assessments and and helping with diagnostics right And deep learning and machine learning by default is not, I mean, it is repeatable, but it it does have, uh, it's a black box, right? You can't really uh, see in most cases what's really going on, what the model is really learning and whether there's going to be an outlier, you know, somewhere which you haven't been able to validate while testing the deep learning model, right? Yeah. And, and... Although we won't be mentioning any names of companies or any or anything like that, but what kind of challenges do you see with if you if your system your system doesn't use machine learning, right? But if if you were to use something like deep learning, what kind of what what bag of worms? What kind of worms would that open up for you that you don't have to deal with right now?
1: Um yeah so one of our different ages with the technology or behind the software is that we are not using any machine learning or ai based methods because yeah i see there is a couple of problems with that approach which we try to avoid <clears throat> one is that um um so the output of the algorithm that has been taught with the AI is as good as the, all the teaching data that has been putting in. Mm-hmm. And because what we've learned, the human anatomy can be really different. So yeah. in order to have a good teaching data, you would need to have really different data sets from different imaging devices, from different geographies, from different people or groups patient groups in order to be really sure that the output of the algorithm is good and robust because it can be really tweaked on based on the teaching data sets. And uh, that's why the approach that we used is more or less uh, in a way that it, the algorithm is not Uh, trying to look for a certain anatomy so it's not taught to look for something it is just simply defining the boundaries of the tissues in -hmm. the image so it doesn't care what shape of a bone what shape of a tumor what shape of a thing is there because it's not trying to look for anything like that Mm -hmm. it's just simply doing that what is in the image and that's kind of the, the good thing is that it's more robust for different pathologies, for different anatomies. It's robust uh, and independent on what is the imaging device. So it doesn't care of the, uh, of the device itself. It doesn't too much care of the image quality. Of course, we have a, a kind of a defined a set that would be optimum for the yep. software, but it's not too picky mm-hmm. on the image quality and also then it's kind of more scalable uh, to different anatomies because you don't need to have a certain data set to really teach it to find a foot like this or a hand like this or a tumor like that so mm-hmm. it kind of has a broader variability uh, w- with a scaling perspective um but that's why we didn't use uh, that type of AI approach in the, in, in defining uh, the actual tissue structures and measurements from the images. But then, uh, again, I think that the AI could be used really much kind of on a higher level task here. So if we have the basic imaging algorithm to really extract the tissues, define the metrics or the parameters on that. And then the AI could actually then start to include the patient data, the patient geography, the weight mm-hmm. and the height and the, and the race and the sex and the whatever there is yeah. and all other conditions, because the AI, I think, is something that you could use for really large pools of data, because then the, it can crunch kind of a lot of numbers and start to get dependencies and all that. But for the imaging analysis as such, uh, we thought, we hope, I'm not sure how this all ends up. uh, But anyway, in this phase, I feel that uh, we avoided a couple of problems by not going for that traditional uh, machine learning or AI-based
0: methodology. So the main i mean i see a multiple uh, perspectives here so one thing is that by having hard coded algorithms that simply do their calculation the way they the way it, it it can be done and just one way and you kind of remove a lot of the subjectivity that comes with data the data that you are feeding into the model right that's number one number two because of that it also although it makes it more robust and more generalizable uh, because it's just the same algorithm, the same calculations with different data. You also remove a lot of the context that an AI model could be able to learn over time, right? For example, like you mentioned, different geographies, different... It can, uh, An AI model can take in a lot more variety of data to make a certain judgment uh, that a typical algorithm would, actu- would actually um, ignore. And so there are pros and True. cons to each aspect. Uh, there are different, you know, applications where an AI, a deep learning model, could have, could do a lot better. And for that, even maybe an algorithm couldn't even be devised, right? Uh, exactly. There's so many factors to consider.
1: Exactly, and that's why we are not. Uh, I'm not saying that we are not using the AI at all, mm-hmm. uh, but we are using it. But it's on the kind of on the next levels up from the basic image analysis. So we are all, yep. uh, for example, using AI then for the fracture, if you're talking about bony structures, fracture analysis as such, mm-hmm. because that is is then actually something that a learning algorithm can be- define better mm-hmm. than this kind of... Uh, uh definitive uh so to say algorithm so we we are using in a sense a hybrid method but for the very basic things we try to avoid the couple of kind of pitfalls in the um, in the ai but it doesn't mean that we are not using because as you said it's something that can create the intelligence yeah. on top of that one so yeah it is there in the picture, but in a different sense that most of the other companies do.
0: Mm-hmm, I see. And when it comes to data gathering or data compliance, can you give us a quick crash course on like, what is, what are the concerns, what you can do, what, are you, what you cannot do, what are the boundaries of what you can do with customer data or scan data?
1: We are not uh, doing too much of anything with the customer scan data, so we are not allowed to do. Mm. We are, uh, what we today are monitoring kind of the image analysis process in a sense that we see that whether it went through or whether everything is okay and the time was okay and all that, but it doesn't have, not have anything to do with the actual imaging data because we cannot store that. Yeah, We cannot use that for anything. So Mm -hmm. that's more or less how how the process goes and how we develop then the actual parameters that we uh, measure in the software. Uh, So that has been done in a separate project that have ethics approvals and all that. And we do that together with the clinicians in a research project. And the point there is always that we don't more or less kind of develop any software there. So it's more or less that we are defining together with the clinicians an interesting topic where they would need to find an answer to. Mm -hmm. And that's how kind of then we develop on the side, those parameters that we need to be including, that would be of interest to other people as well. So we do the the development work uh, on the side uh, with specific research projects then with clinics.
0: Mm, I see so the software the way it works it's not connected to the cloud or you don't once you give it away it's like a software that you give it away and they install on their systems and they use it or is it also connected back to you and you get some feedback from the software
1: yeah so uh, the software is actually in two parts Mm -hmm. one part sits on the clinician's workstation and one part sits in the cloud okay and it's uh, it's like that for two reasons. So the other reason is that um, because of the patient data, uh, it cannot go anywhere outside the hospital. So that's yeah. why the the software sits on the, on the workstation. Yeah. So there is yeah. no worries about that. And the, the cloud part is just doing the analysis on those specific parameters. And it's there so that we can actually see that everything is good and and all is going through okay and then we are having the uh the possibility then to improve also ourselves if we see that it goes wrong or something like that but uh, that's kind of how
0: give me me an example so so what i'm not able to understand Mm -hmm. is what exactly are you getting back to the cloud and what you do with it so give me give me one example of one kind of information that would come back to you yeah
1: Okay, so then, for example, the um, the workstation in the hospital, they put an image in there. Yeah. The uh, P person starts the analysis. So then there is a secured connection uh, between the workstation and the cloud with all the um, all the sec- cyber security things and that. So the software extracts. The, the voxel data, so just the image data from all the other patient data, which is not going anywhere, and just that image data is transferred. It's, it's kind of a transferred to the cloud. The solver, which we call it the solver, is then analyzing that so that image in the cloud. Yeah. Uh, it gets the results. It deletes the image, and it sends the results back to the user and then it erases everything uh, from that image data and all that from the cloud. What we get to monitor is, for example, how long the solver time was. So is is the time okay? Is there some error messages? Uh, due to some reason during the process or something like that. So that is what we get to kind of see. And then we can use that data to really kind of then see if there is a lot of problems or little problems or the analysis time is good and within the limits and all that. And of course, then we combine with the with the customer feedback, everything mm-hmm. okay, the results are good and all that. So that is kind of the how the process goes.
0: Mm-hmm. And based on that, the learnings from the data, if you had to make a change, you would have to go through another huge round of uh, regulation approval and whatnot to make a change in the code or something. Or, or okay, one more question: the change, the code that the code for the software that lives on the cloud, and the code for the software on the workstation, do they have different regulatory cycles to be approved?
1: No, they are within the same cycle. I
0: see.
1: So they are just uh, two levels of the software, but the software is approved as one. Mm. And if you, it depends on, on the majority of the change. Is it a bug fix or is it a major change yeah. on how the whole uh, process with the regulations go? And yes, mm. we need to do also updates and we need to do also re-regulations. And of course, we are audited every year. So it depends on which um, class you're in. So then we are in that class that we are audited every year mm. for a couple of days by the authorities to see yeah. that everything is okay. And this is on the side of the actual product regulative uh, process.
0: Wow, interesting. So let's say, I mean, I'm just taking an example out of our thin air. If you had to build a new dashboard just to visualize some of the data that you're getting into the cloud it would need to be approved um now i'm
1: not a total expert on all the levels on 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 how what what we need to report and what we kind of or how heavy the process is but i know if we add a new anatomy for example Uh, that is a major change and that requires clinical evidence and that requires everything if we add a measure so just uh, do the regular measurements plus add a measure that had the test results and validation and all so that's a much lighter process So just Mm. to give you the examples.
0: I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Cool. So the last thing is, let's get into a little bit of your own, uh, your company's story and evolution, right? How did you begin to, how did you find your way to being the CEO of Dizior in a way?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So um, maybe, yeah maybe the some the kind of route that nobody should follow or so i don't know uh the thing was <laughs> that we were doing um We were doing uh, things in a totally different technology area or industry area. So Finland was famous for Nokia at some point with the cell phones. And uh, then that was bought by Microsoft. And we did a lot of things, the engineering things, 3D Mm. analysis, 3D simulations, all that. That industry, the whole industry more or less died from Finland at that point. And then we thought that, okay, we need to do something New and I had a dream, personal dream of becoming a doctor. Mm. And then I was thinking, could I do something close to that area to really to help people?
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then we had the beautiful kind of uh, methodology thinking that we created over that tech development on the other side that could we use this methodology of 3D analytics and algorithms in a totally different thing? maybe closer to the medtech. And then we kind of uh, did that for a, a couple of months, thinking a lot, mm. calling a lot of doctors, mm. interviewing them, what could be the thing we could do together. And then we founded a company with two doctors and two engineers. Mm. And then it grows from there. Um hiring algorithm developers first, then the actual software coding came along, then the regulative people came along, uh, then the customer care came along. A lot of funding rounds, there in between angel rounds and uh, pre-seed rounds and seed round and and all that. And um, well, it, it Now we are here, so we have been now around for like five years, just turning five, and uh, have the first regulated software for a bit less than a year, Mm -hmm. starting the operations first in Europe, and then uh, uh, going now to the US, as we have the FDA approvals as well. So that's how it goes.
0: Wow, interesting. And what was the... Fundraising, what's the investor outlook like for companies like these? Um, and is this like a uh, VC type? I mean, it doesn't sound like a VC backed venture, uh, at least in the early stages, right? When you don't even know, like you have this long approval cycle and whatnot. What, is, what, what have the conversations been like with investors? And what kind of investors do you typically get more interest, on, interest from uh, in that area?
1: Yeah. So the funding, uh, well, funding part has been uh, a really big learning process. It's my Mm -hmm. first company. So my first touch with at all the funding cycle. So all in all, med tech development requires a lot of money. And mm-hmm. then there is again this dilemma. If you don't know what you're doing and you don't have any proof of what you're doing is good. So it's quite hard to get that big amounts of money. Yeah. So first of all, uh, in the first rounds, I think angel we tried to look for angels who know things about the area so that yeah. we could get, get some knowledge in and we have some up- approval that yes people who know about this thing are investing because they see it's good so it's some sort of a checkpoint that okay these guys believe in them good uh then the vc is more what kind of the is it then we get the family office in first so it's a big smaller amount a bit more generalist also the first vc is a bit more not a med tech focused Mm -hmm. uh a vc but more a generalist uh, type of vc mm. so mm. that is kind of where you can get in the beginning and then of course in the next phase we should get then in actual medtech investors their ticket sizes are quite big and mm. also their expectation is quite big so you need to be quite mature oh, with I your traction it. and the regulation and uh and the kind of really proven that it works that it and it works in the industry mm-hmm. so that is kind of how you gradually grow uh as an in as a kind of a tip uh what i did wrong i should have been collecting a bit more so now it's kind of constantly trying to do the battle when you when, when you do that but it's of course good kind of a tricky combination get the valuation and uh and and what stage your product is in mm-hmm. into that type of balance that that you can get c- collect enough. So maybe it's the same with all. It's never enough. Mm-hmm. It should always be bigger. You should always have more time. Yeah. So, but um, maybe it's it's not at all a uh, area specific thing anyway. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Just have experience on this one.
0: Mm-hmm. One more question. When you, as you were talking, I just uh, that just popped into my mind. Um, Theranos was the big uh, medical industry, medical startup debacle of the last ten years, right? Uh, Theranos being the company for, uh, founded in the America by, by Elizabeth Holmes about you know that the uh, like tech, their tech did not work, although it was a, in a very different domain from yours, but. As somebody who sits far away from that in from that exact uh, mm-hmm. class of uh, technology, has that affected the uh, investing landscape in your opinion or do, do you, or, or do you want to talk about that?
1: Um, um, I know the story. I didn't see from my perspective of anything related mm-hmm. to that. It might be that I haven't been here long enough. So mm-hmm. I don't have the 10 years, 15 years, 20 years perspective. Yeah, so I don't yeah. know what's, what it was before mm-hmm. or what it's after. So I don't have actually a perspective. Mm-hmm. But all in all, I can see that the evidence needs to be bulletproof in this area. And I, in a sense, that's where also we have been hard that to get the evidence there that this really is something solid. Mm-hmm. And in this med tech area, I think it's it's one of the areas where it's kind of most important to have that solid base before you can build it.
0: What? Okay, last question. What was the biggest victory or uh, the biggest personally happy moment along this journey building this company so far?
1: Definitely the work with the surgeons we did. Uh, not one moment, but those those things that you can actually work with the surgeon on a difficult case, and our thing can help. And he discovers, wow, this is what it is. or we we create something great with them that actually helps the patient, because that's kind of my thing. Mm. I don't care how the company goes. I want to leave a mark. In the world, if it's just saving one person or making something better, I'm really happy about that. So, those are kind of the happiest moments. If you get a big person, a big key opinion leader to believe in you, mm. because I that's that's also really awesome. Because I know all the other companies are there as well. So, mm. of course, companies compete on 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 same people, on same greatest hospitals. Everybody wants to go there. And if it's then me, a small Finland, small company, just as an outsider, and we created something that is also interesting that they pick us. So
0: it's kind of, uh, wow, that's super cool. Wow. It sounds like a pretty competitive industry, which I, uh, I mean, didn't imagine before, given the difficulties that you have to face. It's
1: really competitive. It's really competitive. And, and I it, it comes from the thing that it's pretty hard. Uh, it's difficult. It's conservative. It takes a lot of money. So people bet a lot on the companies and they, they invest a lot in the companies. So of I course, see. there is big, big things at stake. Also, it is so that that the Currently, the market is dominated by big players, of course, mm-hmm. because they have the resources and the money to develop new things and all that. So you are in constant kind of uh, uh, you're always coming somewhere on the side where mm-hmm. all the big people are already and they've been trying to kind of settle themselves big and comfortable and all that. And you're mm-hmm. trying to come there on the side and as the medical technology, I don't know, uh, it, it has become really popular lately. So mm. there is a lot of people, a lot of companies trying to get the piece and uh, competing against each other, competing of the best hospitals, competing about the validation, competing about the market shares. And uh, that it, it, it makes it kind of um, that, but... As I don't have too much experience on other, other areas that i created a company there. So I don't know how similar it is. But um, at least in here, it's the stakes are pretty high.
0: Mm, wow. Well, thank you so much, Anna Maria. Uh, really appreciate you being so open and uh, sharing your wisdom with all of us. I'm sure the audience will learn a lot of new things, which... I believe don't often get talked about on podcasts and on you know business content type media that you find on social media all the time but this is the real the real picture the real story that you've given us and really appreciate you sharing this knowledge
1: hey it was my pleasure my pleasure anytime thank you